Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, this is Ben Kaznoka, partner here at Village Global. Today, we're really excited to have Michael Blowing on the program, a world-class world-famous speaking and oral communication coach. Michael, welcome to the Village Global Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. Michael, you are renowned for training some of the world's most successful CEOs and entrepreneurs on how to be better at oral communication and speaking. You've helped me a great deal and many uh, of our own founders and executives that are in the greater village. Want to jump right into some of your top uh, pieces of wisdom for all of the founders and executives out there trying to become better at this critical skill. What is the most common advice that you give people who are trying to become better at oral communication? WGF. I ask them to pose that question to themselves. What's the feeling? What's the feeling you want your audience to have after you're done talking? Do you want them to feel nauseous, constipated, nervous, anxious, uncomfortable, awkward? Uh, Most people say, I want them to feel confident. I want them to feel positive. I want them to feel uh, motivated. And then I ask them, well, who needs to feel that first, the speaker or the audience? And they say, well, I probably have to feel that first. So write your emotional script before anything else and focus on your audience instead of how you're feeling so that you can use that as your guide whenever you're communicating to anyone, especially verbally. So say that acronym again. What's the feeling? WTF. What's the feeling? Okay, gotcha. (laughs) All right. I was just making sure I heard that right. So WTF, what's the feeling? So what's the feeling you want to evoke in the audience? So it sort of starts with the sort of foundational principle, right? Of know your audience, know who you're speaking to, understand the objective of the interaction, right? Well, even if you don't know the audience, it's being able to remind yourself, why am I here? That Maya Angelou quote, they'll forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never make forget how you made them feel. And the idea isn't to pretend or perform. The saying is fake it to make it. And my philosophy is show it to grow it. So if you want people to feel confident, you want to mirror that for your audience. And so that that is the most important advice I give before we dive into content and, and analyzing and understanding your audience is just knowing yourself and where you want to take your audience emotionally, not just informationally. So I think that's a great sort of foundation as a foundation, sort of a foundational assumption or a clarity that, that a presenter needs to have. Where do they go from here? When you think about somebody who's going from zero to a hundred through the full arc of a preparation process or a growth process, once they sort of get clarity on the emotional journey that they want to be on and they want to take their audience on and the needs they're trying to fulfill. What next? Do you dig into thinking about how you're going to open the speech? You do you develop a set of stories that you want to uh, integrate into your presentation or your all hands or whatever the context might be. And we should say for the audience that this can be anything. Oral communication can be beneficial in formal speaking, presenting, Zoom meetings, in-person meetings, the whole gambit can benefit from this skill set. But Michael, sort of what are the what are the next few things that you would cover with a client who you're coaching who's trying to get prepared for one of these sorts of uh, presentations? Well, I definitely want to give you strategy, structure, skills, tips, and techniques. But first, I want to wave a magic wand and reframe your role. So the first thing is just your mindset, how you uh, view audiences and your chance to talk to one person or a million people. And uh, there are these four roles I ask you to think about. And it's not speaker presenter, educator, or even entertainer. That's too much pressure and responsibility on just you. The first one is you're a team captain. And guess who's on your team, Ben? Everyone in your audience. And your goal is to get them to feel like they're on the team and in the game. So it's full participation, 
uh, virtual or in person. The second reframe is uh, you're also the, the captain of a plane. And as a pilot, the two most important parts of a flight, if you're in charge of the, the plane, is the takeoff and the landing. So can you think about how you start and stop your presentation or your conversation? And the last two roles are you're a guy. Any conversation, you're taking us on a trip and you want to be able to not only map that trip, but also clock it. Uh, and the final role, the on-team captain, pilot of a plane and, and guide of a trip is can you not only give us answers, but questions? Because what makes more money than music and movies combined? Games. And people love games. So your role when you communicate with people, if you want them to learn or remember what they learn, is to play game show host. So those are the four roles that help you reframe how you see yourself and also take some of the pressure off of you presenting. And I can go into specific hacks on, on how to plan a presentation, how to improve it, and, and, uh, and to work on other things that entrepreneurs have to plan. Yeah, well, that's really, that's really awesome. I love the idea of being a team captain and being the captain of the plan and so on. And maybe just starting with the team captain sort of metaphor. So what does that specifically imply? Like if you're the captain of the team and the audiences are your players, I guess that implies a sort of um, leadership level energy that you need to bring to the task, right? Yes, leadership and most of all engagement. So instead of you just talking at an audience or a person, it's you being able to involve them and make them feel like they're learning because everyone feels, especially with Zoom and all these video calls, they're just being talked at. So how do you make people feel like they're part of whatever you're communicating? And uh, as far as the quick hacks, I'll give you the top three hacks I give anyone I coach. Uh, And it's three steps. It's based on this premise that a good story is memorable and entertaining, informative, uh, surprising, but the the great story is is retellable. So how do we focus on making sure your whatever you communicate, uh, answer to a question, a story you're, you're you're telling, people not only remember it but understand it and repeat it. So the way to test for both resonance, virality, what will stick and what will spread is one: practice with a partner and record it on your phone. First step is just rehearse and record, not in front of a mirror, but to be able to get feedback from a partner. And the second step then is that feedback is is a four-letter word. Most people say it's a gift, but I think it's data. And you get better data by asking better questions. So instead of you asking me, Ben, after you practice a presentation, a pitch, how did I do or what did did I do wrong? Uh, The better data questions that I've tested with 30,000 people, 100 companies, 50 countries of the last 10 years, but who's counting is asking these five feedback questions. It'll give you specific data to improve whatever you're communicating verbally. And let's distinguish writing versus speaking. So when you practice your, let's say, your your answer to an important question that a BC is asking you, is you want to ask, first of all, what do you remember and why? That's important because if you don't test for recall, you can't test for retellability. If they don't remember it, they're not going to repeat it. And the other reason why you want to ask somebody, what did you remember from what I just said, is because it helps you understand who your audience is and what they're listening for. So it helps you know your audience. The just to jump point, in there for, just jump yeah. in for my colleagues, you're on fire. So keep, I don't, I don't want to take you too far off, but just to, I think it's interesting in the entrepreneurial VC community, you know, for founders who are pitching VCs, uh, you're often pitching one partner or one team member of the venture firm. And quite literally the way that 99% of venture firms make a decision is that person who you pitched has to retell your pitch to their partners to get buy-in on what you're doing. And so, you know, tactically, sometimes founders will say, we'll, we'll try to help 
the person they pitched write the internal investment memo that will circulate internally to increase the odds of their deal getting done. But this idea of even in a quick elevator pitch, uh, delivering a pitch that can be repeated, delivering an anecdote or story that can be repeated is essential for raising venture money. Of course, this repeatability dynamic that you're talking about, Michael, I think is critical across all realms of formal communication, but it is especially pertinent for founders pitching VCs because you almost never pitch the full partnership in the very first meeting. You're pitching a person and you're trying to hope that that person becomes your ally inside the firm. Exactly. Uh, your ally and your advocate. How are others representing you, whether it's one person or a, a committee of people? And back to the retellability, you just want to play the telephone game. Remember that as a kid, broken telephone, someone would say the word dog, and then five people later would come out in Afghanistan. Like, wait, that's not what I said. We're focusing too much on what we say and not enough on what people hear. And more importantly, what do they repeat? That is the simple hack for you to practice with a partner, record it on a phone, ask some feedback questions, uh, and then and then find out what other people say uh, when they're asked, well, uh, why should we invest in this company? Uh, and, and and just to re- recap the, the feedback questions, Ben, uh, there are five easy questions. What do you remember and why? How did you feel and why? What did that tell you about me? You're testing perceptions and judgments. What did I do well and what could I do even better? And that simple hack, doing those Three steps, practicing with a partner on the phone, asking these five feedback questions and practicing two to three times, and then asking your audience, what did I just say? And they say it in their own words. That will give you enough data to quickly improve whatever you're saying to any audience. Repeat those five questions again, Michael, just because they're so great, but just go slowly through them. Sure. First question is, what do you remember and why? Okay. Second question, how do you feel and why? Third question, what did that tell you about me? Fourth question, what did I do well? Final question, what could I do even better? I mean, what I love about that is is a couple of things. First, you're soliciting feedback from others, uh, which can be hard for people. Uh, and you know, as a, as, a, as a mutual friend of ours, Michael likes to say, you have to demand feedback if you want to get feedback. It's not enough just to ask. You have to demand it. And so demanding honest feedback from uh, a test audience in this case, or friends or family, whoever you're practicing with, I think is essential to getting ready for prime time. Um, and it also involves doing something you talk about recording yourself as you do this and then getting feedback from the people you practice in front of or showing the video to somebody if you don't have somebody around uh, in these COVID times. Uh, a lot of people don't like to record themselves. It's a funny, like, just sort of little blip that people sometimes have in their in their own logic or their own sort of level of comfort. And my friend Tyler Cowan, The Economist, once wrote something that I thought was so funny. He said, like, is it a surprise that a lot of people don't like hearing the sound of their own voice? Like they don't want listening to podcasts of themselves or watching videos of themselves. Is it a surprise that that's true? And what's also true is most people are terrible at oral communication. Like if you don't like, if you can't get over that fact that it's somewhat awkward to hear yourself, you will never become a world-class oral communicator because recording yourself and listening and asking these same questions to yourself. Like, what do I remember the thing I just said? What stuck out to me? What seemed to land as I, as it came out of my mouth? And then sending that video to others and getting their feedback and dealing with the awkwardness of them hearing your voice, you know, squeak on this recording. You got to get over that to get better. Yeah, I agree completely. I hate watching and listening to myself and people are like, well, don't you eat what you cook? And I say, well, you record yourself. Yes, for your own reference, but most of all, to get feedback from other people. And it's the fastest way to crowdsource feedback. Say, Ben, listen to this for five minutes and give me your thoughts on these five feedback questions. But it's an easy reference. It also allows you to, to, to baseline and benchmark good, better, best. It's a great way to create your own library of you communicating 
so that you can share it with other people so they can learn from you. Thinking back to the point you made just a couple minutes ago, Michael, about engagement, we were talking about being the team captain and trying to engage uh, your your teammates and your team members, right? If you think about any effective leadership role, right, a, a world in which your followers are staring at you, you know, expressionless for 60 minutes straight is usually not the sign of, of someone who ha- is, is commanding the loyalty and engagement of, of his or her followers. And audience engagement is one of these topics where until we started working together, Michael, I really didn't appreciate it very much in all of the speaking that I was doing. So I was out giving giving talks on on different topics related to books I'd I'd helped write or, or other themes. And you know, my default was really I will go and present for 45 minutes. And at the end, I'll ask if anyone has questions. And a lot of people think that just a QA section at the end of their presentation constitutes audience engagement. And that's just so woefully inadequate. And that it seems like the very best presenters, speakers, communicators constantly throughout the course of a 10-minute meeting, all-hands meeting, or a 25-minute presentation to the exec team, or a 45-minute pitch to the VC, throughout the entire presentation, they should be engaging the audience. And again, just to speak to the VC entrepreneur perspective, I'm amazed the number of founders who pitch us here at Village, who they'll have a 30-minute or 45-minute calendar slot, and they will spend almost all of it speaking nonstop. And especially in the Zoom era and the COVID era, that's incredibly dangerous in terms of whether people are actually listening to you and not just doing email on the side. So let's dig into engagement a little bit. How do you, how, how do you help people think through ways to engage the audience? Solve and surprise. Two principles that help us understand how we learn and how we remember. So the solve part is you can show me the answer like the end of the math book in high school. I had the answers, but I, I couldn't figure out the problem because I, I never actually solved it. Uh, and the same principle is true for lots of entrepreneurs pitching to VCs. They give you a deck full of answers, but they don't really tee up the questions. So that's one philosophy is like, can you make people do the math so that they can, one, think on think for themselves, and two, feel smart when they can come up with the answer? And then the surprise part is a way to lock on the phenomenon of people remembering what they don't expect. We remember what we do, and we remember what we don't expect. So what's an example? You just named it, Ben. Questions. And instead of waiting at the end of your pitch or presentation for the questions, you build that into your presentation or conversation. Uh, and one way to do that is to gamify questions. So what's an example? Three levels of, of way to make question a game. Level one, open-ended. Level two, multiple choice. And level three, surprise. Here's a question for you. 2019, who was the number one competitor in Netflix? open-ended question. People are wondering, I don't know. Way to engage your audience with a rhetorical question. Nobody has to answer. They could type in the chat in the virtual world. Second level, 2019, Ben, number one competitor for Netflix. Was it Amazon, Disney, or Hulu? Okay. The team captain saying play. Got a better chance of answering it because I gave you three choices. What do you think it is, Ben? Amazon, Hulu, or Disney? uh, Hulu. Hulu. See, I got you to play. Okay, great. <laughs> and third level of the game is none of the above, Ben. And you think this is this dumb game. Mm. You can give me a fourth choice, none of the above. And the answer is Fortnite. And you're thinking that's not even a media company. It's a video. It's a game. And the point is Netflix is not a media company. It's an entertainment company. When tens of millions of kids are playing a video game, they're not watching Netflix. And the traditional speaker would say in 2019, Fortnite was the number one competitor for Netflix. They gave you the answer. You didn't have to do the math. You weren't surprised necessarily in the same way as this uh, series of questions. But the idea is, how do you help people learn? 
And and the other way you can do it is uh, there's a technique I teach everybody. Why MBA? Remember this? Okay, so one? hold on. Just before you go forward, I just just to underscore that because I think that's yeah. such a great example, and I'm having flashbacks to when you helped me craft uh, various speeches uh, over the years, Michael. Because so so someone like <laughs> level zero flashbacks in the best possible sense of the word, just to be clear. Uh, level zero is you simply give the audience the answer, right? Level one is so in this case it would be Fortnite's the biggest competitor to Netflix in 2019 or whatever. Yeah. Level one is the open is the rhetorical question. You know, does anyone here know what the biggest competitor to Netflix was in 2019? The next level up from that was giving them options, right? So, okay, what, who do you think is the best with the number one competitor? Was it Hulu? Was it Disney, et cetera, Amazon? And then the most elite level is, is, is actually you don't have the answer in one of the multiple choice. You surprise them by saying, actually, it was none of the above. And it was Fortnite. And in fact, that's because we are not thinking about Netflix in the proper frame. So like surprise is the ultimate most advanced game. Uh, is that, did I capture that spectrum correct? correctly? You did it with your keynote speeches of the past few years. You started with what is the one thing that people love the most about Silicon Valley and its business model? Is it the free food in the micro kitchens? Is it the bicycles that you can ride around campus? Is it the, the nap pods where you can take go to sleep during the day? And the answer you gave was, it's the people. Right. And actually, just on that specific example, one other thing you taught me on that, and that the, how I specifically delivered that point was, it's the people actually was delivered in a whisper, which is, we'll get to that later. It's just <laughs> little tactics around voice modulation. But yeah, sometimes <laughs> the... Uh, the whisper is a very powerful way of delivering a, a bold point. But anyway, okay, so that's a great way of thinking about audience engagement and and just such a, a, a an easy thing that people can do to make their audience feel more engaged as they're presenting. Okay, you're about to go on to another uh, acronym, oh, Michael. Uh, one last tip. Whisper is very effective. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, and so for everyone listening, that was that was a whisper in action. So here's the acronym, another one. YMBA. I ask everyone before they talk to their manager, their investor, YMBA is you might be asking, you might be wondering, you might be thinking, and you should be able to list and rank the top questions, concerns, objections, risks that your audience has. If you don't, if you're not thinking ahead, my investor is going to think, okay, what about scale? What about the team? What about comp- competition? If you have not already anticipated that, ranked it, and then built it into your presentations, you're, you're just selling me a used car. There's all upside with no downside. So subjection handling. Fascinating. Okay, so, so maybe going back, because there's so much territory we want to cover, Michael. Um, you, we talked about sort of this team captain and the engagement dynamics. Can we shift to talking about opening and closings? And how, how do you tend to advise folks because I, I, when I'm always giving quick tips to our founders or other friends of Village, I, I often insist that they uh, go into a meeting or a presentation knowing exactly how they're going to open and exactly how they're going to close. And sometimes just that's because those matter for making your point and making a good impression, but also because I think it can reduce nerves a little bit if you're anxious or have nervousness around uh, a difficult or crucial conversation or presentation. Just feeling like you have the script down for how you open and close will allow you to be more calm as you as you enter sort of the the, the main stage. Uh, so what advice do you have uh, on how to open and close presentations, Michael? Be a good pilot. The, the opening and closing matter, they're what I call the bookends, but I reverse it. So I read the seven habits of highly effective people. I only remember one of them, which is why I'm highly ineffective. It's begin with the end in mind. So 
So when it comes to deciding opening and closing, focus on the closing. Why? Well, it's why every gymnast raises their arms in the air at the end of a routine. It's recency bias. Whatever you see in here last is the easiest to remember. So with your closing, uh, here are three ingredients to stick your landing, to use the gymnast metaphor. Summary, sequel, and surprise. What does that mean? First one is essential for any anything you communicate. The summary is to answer this set of three questions. Know, do, feel. Ben, what do you want me to know? Give me the takeaway in 140 characters or less. If you're on a panel or a press interview, I want you to write those tweets. And we play a game of predicting which tweets are they going to repeat. What pull quotes are those journalists going to report in their article? And so that first question is easy. It's finishing the sentence, Ben. Hey, if you remember nothing else from what I've just what I've just said, it's finish that sentence with a takeaway. The do is what's the call to action based on that insight. And once you have identified the action, which is uh, invest, give me my, my series A or tell other people or think about these questions, then you can answer the third question. What's the feeling that will drive the action? That's the sequence. And the, and the feeling could be anything from optimism and confidence to something that we all know in the Valley, FOMO, fear of missing out. So it's being very clear on my take, my insight, takeaway, my call to action, and again, the emotion that will drive that action. And just to be clear, I think, you know, uh, I generally advise folks to not try to memorize their entire presentation word for word. Um, you can have, you know, bullet points that you are referring to or glancing down at, uh, or, you know, if you're presenting virtually, where it's even easier to potentially memorize, uh, to read off a script I don't think that will come off as overly robotic, but I think, you know, actually developing a word for word paragraph that you're going to deliver at the close of a meeting or presentation or speech can be really helpful because that will just, that allows you in preparation to integrate these concepts, Michael, that you're talking about around the feeling you want to leave them with the call to action, et cetera. So there's no shame in having a word for word script written out, in my opinion. Let me just, can I just ask you, Michael, maybe just to challenge you a little bit on the idea that the ending matters most. I think that's certainly true to some extent and there's recency bias and people remember, you know, peaks and endings according to psychology research. So they pick the best moment and the last moment. I feel like in the virtual world, especially, but always, but especially in the zoom world, that's really critical to engage people out of the gate because if you lose them in the first couple minutes, you've lost them to email, you've lost them to social media, et cetera. So if you don't nail the opening, do you even have an opportunity to land the close? or to, 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 to nail the, the, that, that takeaway points that you're making. Very true. If you lose them up front, they're not paying attention to it at the end. Uh, and the last two ingredients of that closing, uh, it was the summary as well as a sequel setting up what's next. So it's not just a recap and the surprise is uh, a way to, for you to think about the opening. So the reason why I say plan for the closing first, and you're right, Ben, if you're going to script anything, it's your first, 30 seconds, it's your last 30 seconds. I'm asking you to write and remember a minute of whatever you're communicating so that when you get interviewed, you've seen this countless times, a founder gets interviewed on TV and they're asked a basic question like, so how did your business get started? What does your business do? And they have all this filler words and they just waffle in the beginning. It's like, did you not know that question was coming? So, right. It's like, it's a, it's a shock. It's a shocking first question. You know, talk to me about what your company does. And people feel like it is for so many people. It's like, uh, they're hearing it for the first time. Right. So for the opening back to the opening and, uh, it relates to the closing part. 
the, the surprise part of a close is meant to, again, get people to remember what you're saying. And where they leverage surprise the most is reality contests and movies like Sixth Sense and Star Wars. So reality contests, singing, dancing, cooking, pitching, dating. It's the rose at the end, the big reveal. And the rose goes to, and TV shows do that all the time because they build anticipation and suspense from the beginning. So as you ask me what will get people to listen is could you create a hook in the beginning that promises some kind of big reveal at the end? You know, like here is the number one reason why we were going to beat the incumbent in this space. I'll tell you at the end. The other way you leverage surprise at the end is Sixth Sense was that little kid with Bruce Willis who said, I see dead people. Star Wars with Darth Vader telling Luke Skywalker, I'm your dad. And we remember that because we didn't expect it. And it's another way to leverage the power of surprise at the end. So how does it relate to the beginning? Once you plan the close, you can figure out how to thread it to the beginning. That's the sequencing. So I'm not arguing with you like that the closing is more important than the beginning, but the order to plan the end so you can then tie it to the beginning. And the opening is, if you think about all the songs we listen to, they don't all start the same. They're not with, hi, my name is, and I'm going to sing you a song about, but that's every presentation or pitch. They start with a resume and roadmap. Who are you and what are you going to talk about? And what is most important about their opening, it's a trailer. It's a trailer to a movie. You give me 30, 60 seconds, make me want to watch and listen to the whole show. How do you hook people in the opening? And that relates to two questions. What's in it for me? And give me the bottom line up front. W-I-F-M and B-L-U-F are the two acronyms some people use. But you can do that in so many ways. A question, a statistic, a headline, a picture, a song, a poem, a prediction, a opinion, a story. There are unlimited ways to start, but we have been conditioned to think it's like high school English, thesis, three supporting sentences, summary. We have so many ways to open that are much more original and provocative than just the, hi, my name is, and here's what I'm going to talk about. It's a great point. I mean, the number of people who I hear begin presentations with a recitation of their professional background. So I was at Uber for a couple of years and I went on to work at Twitter. I mean, it just, it immediately bores the audience. You can always come back uh, to people's backgrounds as you need to, but it's a, it's, it's a dead on arrival opener. Let's, let's maybe shift Michael and talk about storytelling. You know, in a lot of people sort of conflate all these different constructs or they, or they get really hot on storytelling as the thing to think about. Whereas I think, themes we've been talking about so far in this podcast conversation around opening, closing, structure, emotional journey, et cetera, are as important or more important. But no doubt, stories are really powerful and having great stories embedded into any presentation or talk or all hands or internal meeting, whatever you're trying to accomplish as a leader with respect to oral communication, stories can be quite handy. I uh, and, and you've taught me a lot about how to tell stories. I, I've, I've told a story about John Lasseter uh, Michael, as you know, uh, from my previous career, and I remember working with you to sort of craft every component of that story, the details of the story, how to frame it up, how to have an element of surprise, how to deliver it uh, in a way that I uh, would really resonate with the audience. So what are your top a few tips for how people can bake stories into their oral communication? Money and music. That's what stories are. Mo money, mo music. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I think there's a song in there, Ben. All right. The, uh, the anthem for your entrepreneurs. Yes, the money metaphor. So biography is currency. What do I mean that by that? Your stories buy you three things with any audience. Not all of these three things, but 
some of them. One, it buys you connection. Two, credibility. And three, curiosity. The connection is, oh, uh, I can relate to what you're saying, Ben. The credibility, I believe in what you're saying and what you're doing. And the curiosity, I'd like to learn more. And so that's why stories matter. More than facts, more than tables and charts, stories allow us to connect and to convince and, and, and to uh, lead to conversations. The music metaphor is Spotify, Pandora, Google Play. We organize our songs into playlists. We should do the same thing for our stories. How do you know what stories to tell? Well, just like a, uh, with, with, with songs, you get requests. And I track stories based on FAQs, frequently asked questions. Every interview or conversation that you have with anyone is usually some version of past, present, future. Usually it starts with the present that goes back to the past. It's some version of what do you do? What have you done? How do you end up here? And what's next? And for every one of those FAQs, I tell you, uh, you need to come up with the soundtrack for your business, for your company. And that's full of FTSs, frequently told stories. So for every question you get, like, Ben, what do you do? That is a solution story. Give me a problem that I have that you solve. What have you done? That's a list of success stories. If you're talking to an investor, you want to be able to recount your successes based on what their priorities are. The, sec- the third question is every founder needs to be ready for it. And it's the, how did you end up starting your company or specializing in whatever your focus is, AI or something else? The origin story is foundational. And the last one that's part of your greatest hits, the vision story. What's next? And the last tip with, about this, with the music metaphor is when I was coaching somebody, I can't tell you who it is because of the non-disclosure agreement, but she got so good at telling your stories, she would say it the same way every time, no matter who she was talking to. She got an A for quality and consistency, an F for connection, because she wasn't actually seeing and connecting with her audience. So the metaphor is, if your stories are like songs, don't be the jukebox, be the DJ. You got to be able to remix it for different audiences. So again, I think that's and I think that's a really great point. It's something that you that I've learned a lot uh, with respect to this this being better oral communication storytelling and all these techniques. Actually, all the audience engagement techniques. It's it, they're all tools in a toolkit or a you know, playlist of different options. And the really gifted presenters and oral communicators will remix these different tools and use different tools and stories depending on how things are going uh, in real time. In fact, so sometimes it's customized based on the audience. Sometimes it's you're in the middle of a meeting and you realize that half people are off video or disconnected or not paying attention and you need to add energy to the room. And so you want to be able to draw upon a toolkit uh, of tools that you feel confident about that you can deploy in the moment. And I think that's sort of the next level. Like if you look at the most talented folks, it's, it's, they're able to do that sort of on the fly adjustments, right? Exactly being flexible and, and present to whoever you're talking to. I mean, I think generally when I think about storytelling, I find I mean, one simple piece of advice is make your short stories shorter. Like the, the sort of in general brevity uh, is, 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 can be a real superpower here. I remember Dan Pink has a good line on speaking, which is brevity, levity, and repetition. I'll say that again, brevity, levity, and repetition. You know, he's, he's all about uh, be short be a little funny and repeat yourself, repeat the key points over and over again, because people have, you know, short attention spans and they easily forget. And, uh, but so, you know, make your stories shorter and really practice and rehearse them. And I think that's a theme that runs through this entire conversation. If you're listening to this podcast, you want to get better at oral communication and speaking, you actually have to invest meaningful time in getting better at this stuff. It doesn't always come naturally. The payoff's huge, to be clear. I think this can be transformative in a professional trajectory, but 
uh, you have to actually work at it. And, 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 and for with respect to stories, uh, don't just wing it. I mean, don't wing any part of a presentation, I would argue, but especially don't wing stories because a story that's not prepared is a story that can ramble and go on and you can, you can lose the audience to the punchline. So have it be crisp and tight and know exactly where the payoff line is, know exactly where the hook or surprise is, or know exactly how you're going to bridge that story to whatever the main point is. Uh, so it's, it can be fraught territory if we're not prepared. Exactly. And it is not a superpower to make a long story longer. Exactly right. So, um, so maybe just as we, as we get to the, to the and, and part of our conversation, Michael, you know, we're, we're recording this in February, 2021, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic still in full force, uh, a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of virtual presentations, anything that you're advising your clients these days and how to win virtually that might be different from uh, traditional in-person advice? So the blessing of virtual communication online is the no need, you you don't have to prepare for standing in front of an audience and figure out where do I turn and how do I use all this body language uh, to be able to tell my story. You can actually have your notes or your script right in front of you on the screen. You don't have to memorize everything. And it also has been easier for introverts, as I've been told. Like, okay, I don't have to worry about all these people uh, on stage as I'm looking at the audience. The advice I give everyone is with the virtual communication, always have a plan C, which is the computer crashes, have some backup. And the most important thing is audio matters more than video on virtual communication. Uh, and the three areas I always focus on, Ben, are, are vibe, voice, and visual. First, the vibe is like, what, what's the feeling? Regardless of what your content is, we'll get a feeling of whether you feel like I have to do this, this is a drag, or I get to do this, I'm actually enjoying this. The voice part, you spoke to the power of whisper and getting loud, or the speed of your voice, when you can plan your pause. And again, build that in when you ask questions or when you have a big reveal or a punchline. And the last part a part about your voice is to watch for filler and jargon. And the visual part is the most challenging that I've discovered is, where do you look? Do I look at that green dot on top of my, my computer? Uh, do I look at my notes? I have to look at both. Uh, and it's, uh, it's important for you to be able to connect with a spot to look at, but also in your mind, am I having a conversation with someone? So I actually... I actually tape a picture of my grandma, who's my favorite person in the world, on my computer so I feel like I'm talking to someone instead of a screen. Uh, and then the last tip is on your hands. A lot of people use hand gestures, but they're either below the screen or they're above the screen, and they don't mean anything. So it's making sure when you move, it means something. And I, I think the last tip I would give everyone is, is to just, again, be present. Because all the storytelling advice I've given people doesn't matter if you don't actually believe in what you're saying and uh, connect to the audience you're talking to. Well, I'm glad you raised some of the voice modulation points because we hadn't gotten to that in this conversation, but I think that's key, whether it's in-person or virtual. I don't think it's a virtual only tip, but this idea that I learned from you, which is that change creates energy. So you can talk really, really quickly and that can work if that's your natural pace, or you can talk really slowly and deliberately and that can also work. But the thing that has the most energy in a presentation is to vary and to go back and forth. And similarly with the volume of your voice, right? You can, you can whisper and you can talk really, really loudly and you can go all the way up and down that spectrum. And so I think, I, I think there's a lot that you can play with there. Um, and when you're trying to keep a virtual audience engaged or any audience, but especially virtual audience where you're, you know, you're talking to people that are just one click away from potentially something more interesting, uh, it's key to use your voice 
to keep people engaged. And when I think about some of the most boring presentations or speeches that I've ever seen, it really is the monotone, right? It's same pace, same tone of voice, very little change, and thus really low energy. You are correct. Yes, exactly. And uh, as far as playback, Ben, I ask you to record yourself so you can play it back at least three ways. One is like audio and video. Second is just the video. Uh, so you can see how you're coming across. Are you a statue not moving with moving lips? And are you erratic and having all this distracting movement? The audio is important so you can listen for what you just said, the voice modulation. So it's like you have three different experiences, just sound, just video, and both. The uh, So maybe just to wrap, if folks want to get better at this set of skills. There's a lot of, there are a lot of things that one could do right there. Books that have been written, there are various websites, there's videos. I mean, I've, I, we, you and I have talked about Tony Robbins and his, his gifts. And I've, I've certainly watched a lot of Tony Robbins. You could do worse than, than watching him for a couple hours on YouTube and just trying to emulate a lot of his techniques with respect to audience engagement. He's for my money, the most talented uh, public speaker in the world, or at least he was at his peak. So, so there's a lot of ways to learn. Of course, there are also uh, workshops and, and, and coaches that people can hire if, uh, how, how would you sort of advise that people make sense of the landscape of advice or opportunities for, for personal growth and development here? When should they hire a coach like yourself and really work intensively versus sort of scanning YouTube or, or buying a book and, and doing it more on their own? It depends on the stage you're at, Ben. So the three-step dance for anything verbal is content structure and delivery. Uh, what am I going to say? How will I say it in terms of the structure? And then how will I stand and deliver with the voice modulation, the body language? And for most people, once you have the script and the slides locked in, you're just focused on the delivery. Go to Toastmasters. Own the room is amazing. And the second step is structuring it. How do you actually plan the opening, the closing, the questions in the middle, the stories you're going to tell? And the first part is actually the most interesting and the most challenging. And it's where I focus my energy as an attorney as well as an advisor to companies is not just telling the story but finding the story that is actually the the, the most challenging part it's, it's not the cosmetic here uh, do these things to make it sound better it's actually figure out what is the story up front and uh, there are a lot of different ways to find that but you want to ask yourself what do I need and do I have a coach a tutor advisor who can help me with any parts of this of this puzzle like what do i have to say the content or how i'm going to put it together in a presentation the structure or the actual delivery part and what right. I found, there are very few people who can do the whole thing totally and i think it's a great point i think a lot of people a lot of coaches or experts on public speaking and communication you'll find out there will sort of obsess about you know making eye contact or you know how to stand with poise on stage things like that um and th- those things can be important but there's an underlying set of issues and challenges related to the actual content itself and the stories that are actually interesting. And sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs I talk to or friends in business will say, well, how, you know, this coach is not an expert in biotech or not an expert in whatever uh, the, the field might be. But I think if you're a great coach or you're a great consultant in this area, you're generally smart enough to get up to speed enough to be able to be useful in actually thinking through content and narrative arc. And so I'd say in terms, as I think about the landscape of sort of self-development on this area, there's a lot that one can do on one's own, watch some videos, buy books. There's plenty of low, there's lots of low hanging fruit that a lot of people can, can, can pick to better themselves in this area. If you want to go to a class or engage a coach, think about sort of the, sort of the minor leagues and the major leagues. I think the minor leagues of coaches will help 
you improve on the margins with respect to things like voice modulation, maybe some audience engagement, pace and posture, if it's an in-person context, et cetera, they're unlikely to have just the raw horsepower or interest even in engaging with the substantive material itself. Uh, and I think at the major league level, that's what you get. You get those, you get sort of the aesthetic uh, improvements, but you can also dig into the content itself, even if they're not a true domain expert and think through, okay, in what order do I want to say these points? What is the narrative arc here? What is the interesting takeaway for this audience? And uh, and I think that's that's what you get when you when you pay for that kind of advice. But the whole spectrum can be useful and depends where you're where you're at now and what the goals are. But I think if you're if you're an early stage entrepreneur and you're running a you know engineering oriented company and it's a relatively small organization, you're just trying to go out and raise your Series A financing. You know you probably don't need to engage a major league level coach to work with you for six months to do that fundraise. But if you're a CEO of an of a growing company with lots of internal meetings and and team outings and 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 uh, there are lots of opportunities to 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 be a great oral communicator, it might be worth you investing in this area at sort of the major league level because the opportunities for this sort of these skills to have an impact is well beyond just a, a formal presentation. I mean, every team meeting you have, a product management offsite all will draw upon these skills. And so it can be a really worthwhile investment as your company scales and as you're called upon to be a leader in more and more of those environments. Michael, any final words from you or, or parting words of advice before we uh, we wish you well? Just look for these three things and anyone who's communicating uh, with you as a coach. Competence, do they know what they're doing? Commitment, do they really believe in you and what you are doing? And lastly, the chemistry, the connection you have with whoever's going to coach you. And my advice is not on the telling of the story, but the finding story, because the best work I've been able to do with entrepreneurs, with VCs is being able to discover what I call the GSNTs, the greatest stories never told. And every one of us has them. We just need a partner to be able to unearth them and then polish them for audiences. Michael, you're a great friend of Village Global. We're honored to have you in our in our community. Thank you for sharing so much of your wisdom uh, with us today. And uh, we'll look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Thanks again, Ben. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.